I've demonstrated that you can put 200 pounds of weight on a calf in in a little over 100 days. If you turn them out the 1st of April, you pull them off the 4th of July, and that's with no supplement. That's no. There's no added inputs to try and get there. It's just simply by matching the growth rate of the tall fescue during the spring with the um, basically enough animal pressure. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. DSM Furmanish. Mycotoxins can threaten feed and cattle performance. DSM Furmanish offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds in the beef industry. Today, we are joined by Dr. Eric Bailey, Assistant Professor of Animal Science and State Beef Extension Specialist with the University of Missouri. Dr. Bailey maintains an active applied research program in beef cattle nutrition, focusing on stalker cattle systems and improved usage of Kentucky 31 tall fescue pastures, which is the predominant forage in Missouri and in Southeast Kansas, where I live. Dr. Bailey has received more than $1.1 million in grants and has 21 publications in peer-reviewed journals. Dr. Bailey leads the MU Extension Feedlot School Program and is the co-coordinator of the Missouri Grazing Schools developed by University of Missouri Extension. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Bailey to the podcast today as we have known each other for a very long time via our connection to Kansas State University. So let's jump right into it. Um, Dr. Bailey, if I can call you Eric, um, how are you doing today? And thanks for coming on for, with us. I'm excellent, Brandy. Thank you for having me on this podcast today. Please call me Eric, by the way. I, I <laughs> don't get very caught up in those formal titles, especially not uh, with somebody that I've shared an adult beverage or two at the the Lou in Aggieville. Yeah. So. Well, I I was intending to call you Eric like the rest of the episode. I just felt like I needed to start it out with Dr. Bailey. You got your PhD. You earned the respect and the the accolades that come with earning with that. So being called doctor, I, I just wanted to make sure I did that to start with, but I will call well, you thank Eric. Thank you. I will call you Eric the rest of the time. So um, I'm very excited to have you on here. Um, sadly, we don't live that far from each other, but we don't get to see each other a bunch. So it'll be good to catch up a little bit. To start off with, I didn't, you know, delve into a lot of your background. It's just like a very basic overview. But if you want to share with us how you got involved in the beef industry, your career path, like I met you when we were at K-State and now you're in Mizzou, but I know that you're not from Kansas and that you traveled a long <laughs> way to get there. So if you want to just tell us about that and bring us up to speed, that would be great. Sure. So I am actually a native of Eastern New Mexico. I grew up on a commercial cow, calf and stalker operation. Both my father and grandfather worked for uh, a corporate ranch out there in Eastern New Mexico. That's over 1.1 million acres. Um, so I was born and raised on that ranch and, you know, uh, spent a lot of time a horseback and, you know, tend into cattle. And it's really pretty much all I've ever known. I, I originally went to college to, to be a veterinarian. And like many other students who get into 
agriculture and, you know, the only person that they ever interact with that's like a professional animal scientist is a veterinarian. And I was at West Texas A&M for a bachelor's degree. And I was very fortunate that one of my mentors was teaching my feeds and feeding class, Mike Brown. And he, he grabbed me aside after class one day and said, Hey, you're doing really well in this class. You know, I, I urge you to consider thinking about other alternatives to pre-veterinary medicine, you know, and he gave me a list of names, uh, folks to contact about, to learn more about graduate school and ruminant nutrition. And Casey Olson was on the top of that list. So I called Casey and I went and visited Manhattan in the summer of 2007. And I knew right then and there, as soon as I stepped onto campus in Manhattan, that that was where I wanted to go to school. So I, uh, I did both my master's and PhD at at K-State, I my master's actually was with Evan Titkemeyer in more kind of basic uh, nitrogen metabolism type stuff. And that's actually where I uh, I first met your husband, Hyatt Brandy. He, he worked for me as an undergraduate in the lab. And so I master's was done in 10. I stayed and I got a PhD under Casey's supervision. We basically looked at preconditioning systems for calves on the ranch of origin and how they impacted their performance in in the feedlot. So we would have carried these cattle. We'd have fed them out at the Western Kansas Ag Research Center in Hayes after we had applied preconditioning treatments on the ranch of origin. Um, did that for five years, graduated, and then I went into academia right away. I was on faculty at West Texas A&M for four years um, in an endowed chair cow-calf position before um, I had the opportunity to uh, pursue uh, the state beef extension specialist job at Mizzou. And I've been here at Mizzou now for six years and really enjoy it. And, you know, uh, this was my first foray into the fescue belt and into cool season perennial grasses. So I'm, I'm sure that the first 12 to 18 months, some of my recommendations were probably a little rocky <laughs> as I was getting up to speed myself. But uh I also think that it's it's a net benefit for everybody because I bring some of the sort of more Western mentalities and ideas about production to the tame grass introduced pasture forage systems that we have here in the Southeast. And I, I actually think that's the perfect segue into the, the first thing that you wanted to talk about, right? In terms of feeding hay in the winter. Yeah. Your cattle are constantly threatened by the exposure of mycotoxins in feed. Now you can know if mycotoxins are present in your feed and what you should do about it. DSM Furmanish offers a range of analytical services to assess the mycotoxin contaminations and solutions to combat those mycotoxins. Don't let mycotoxins contaminate your performance. Visit dsm.com forward slash ANH dash NA to learn more. So, well, thanks for clarifying. I knew that you had gone to West Texas A&M and I couldn't remember, uh, if that, I, I couldn't remember when. And then also I had forgotten that you went back to work there before you came back to Mizzou and your work experience uh -huh. is a decade now and it doesn't seem like we've been out of school. It <laughs> definitely decade, does not. But we have. Um, but yeah, so that's a good segue into um, what your thoughts were, um, audience. So we might as well just jump right into something controversial because honestly, I am tired of the Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey discussion. So we need to have something controversial to talk about and, um, and life needs a little bit of spice. So you told me in our episode prep that quote, Hey is the devil. So this is end quote. So this is your chance to explain that you've kind of already hinted at it. So I'm, we're all ears to hear more about that thought process. 
Well, it's really simple. So there are a number of institutions that have evaluated profitability of cow-calf operations, and they look for a single factor to which you can ascribe profitability to in a cow-calf operation. Or, or in other words, what is the most the single factor that influences profitability the most. And and I think ranching for profit says it the most eloquently. There is an inverse relationship between profitability and number of days feeding hay in the wintertime mm-hmm. across North America. So not just in Montana, Wyoming, or in Texas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, or even in Alberta or Canada for that matter. But mm-hmm. across North America, the more days you feed hay in the winter, the less profitable you are as a commercial cow-calf operation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's I, I find it quite interesting then to come over into the fescue belt and for it to routinely be a practice to feed hay from, you know, I used to think 90 days of feeding hay in the winter was bad. But I mean, I, I see a lot of operations that are feeding hay for 120 to 150 days a year. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just, it's a... It is a management practice that does not correlate with profitability for commercial cow-calf production. And so I, I try to make bold and strong controversial statements about it just to try and get people to think a little differently because it's it's very much a, a mindset of, well, we've always fed hay. We're going to continue to feed hay. But it's, it's bad for the business from a 30,000-foot view. So... I did a, I do some numbers based on our extension budgets every year, and I share those with my extension audiences. And I've never run an extension budget analysis on hay feeding in Missouri and come up with a number where it costs less than three times for you to swath, bale, store, feed back to the cow and have her waste waste some of it as yeah. compared to her harvesting it herself. Even and I, I even in a continuous grazing system where the cows are on the same pasture year round, there's no kind of managed intensive grazing type setup. It's just it the decision to have a long hay feeding season is an economic disaster for commercial cow calf production. You're giving us all sorts of sound bites to use here, Eric, to like frame your face and put it on Instagram. These are great. Oh sound boy. Bites. But they're, I mean, it's all making sense. There's a, um, I was just at a workshop or a, <clears throat> I was at the Reading, the National Reading is convention a couple of weeks ago. And that was something that was discussed is like the, I think it was Ron Rabu who said, Rabo who said it. And it was like, you know, one of the least profitable mindsets is that like, we've always done it this way. So we're going to keep doing it this way. And so- well, and I'll I'll even take it a step further. When we introduced the round bale, that introduced the conditions for us to waste even more hay because we've made a trade-off between convenience and efficiency of use, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, it's pretty common to see a round bale put out in a ring and even, uh, you know, unless you're spending big money on one of them fancy chain style rings or feeders or something like that, you know, 20, 15 to 20% waste is very common. If you don't put any kind of ring out, you could waste 40% of that bale. And so I think even to take it a step further, the trade-off of convenience has, has driven that bus even further. So, you know, I, I, I especially will come out swinging against the round bales, (laughs) even though it is the most predominant form or package that 
that stored forages are, are put in today. So, okay. So on that note, if someone is, they are reducing the amount of hay that they're using, you know, they've got it down. I don't know what a reasonable acceptable number is in your opinion, but they have, re, you know, they're working to feed less hay, feed less stored forage. Maybe they're trying to utilize their pasture more, but they're still feeding ram bales. Do you prefer to see those ram bales rolled out or over instead of being used in a hay feeder? Is that like a better situation in terms of wastage for you? Because like I personally on our ranch, I believe that we waste less hay when we roll it out, but I don't have figures or data around those two comparisons. And I'm hoping that you do. So that's a, that's a great question, Brandy. Great questions, actually. I want to address the first one. Mm-hmm. So the first question being how, how many days should you feed hay? Understand that everybody has a bias, even the scientists who are supposed to be objective. And, and I'll just lay my bias on the table to start with. There was no farming in eastern New Mexico. If we were buying hay, it was being trucked hundreds of miles from Colorado, from the Texas Panhandle. It was prohibitively expensive. Yes, we always had a semi-load of hay around in the barn, but that was for an emergency. If we had a blizzard, a wildfire, something along that those lines. So, I mean, we would keep hay around the the ranch, and we would use it periodically just to turn our inventory over, whether we were feeding it to wean calves or to our horses at at home. Um, But understand, we had one semi-load of hay for 600 mama cows. 200 bulls that we were developing, 200 uh, replacement heifers. I mean, we had a we had over a thousand animals that 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 one semi load of hay was going to to go for. Now, how we made the decision to, or how we could facilitate grazing 365 days a year is that is stocking rates are much lower there. So, you know, at home in New Mexico, we would be at about 50 to 55 acres of pasture per cow, and they would graze year round. In Missouri, it's pretty common for folks to say, we're going to stock at a rate somewhere in the neighborhood of two to three acres per cow. But the reality is, is that they're stocking not on a kind of a 12 month basis. They're stocking more for a kind of seven or eight month grazing season. And so grazing season. Yeah. But what's interesting, and this is this is another just scorching hot take for the podcast. <laughs> if you look at the the price per acre of land across North America, how many dollars do I have to spend to buy enough pasture to run a cow for a year? It's really not all that different when you factor in stocking rates. And so, you know, I often hear folks that are new to Missouri say, oh, pasture is you know, compared to other parts of the country, pasture is so cheap. Well, it's really not all that different when you factor in all the external costs, right? Yeah, pasture's cheap because you only need two acres of cow and it costs, you know, like in southern Missouri, you're probably in the three thousand to four thousand dollar an acre range. And in the northern half of the state, you're probably in the five to six thousand an acre range. And it's been several years since I've seen this, but I had heard a figure at one time, and I I, I wish I could tell you all where I it came from, but that said that it would cost about fifteen thousand dollars per to buy enough land to run a beef cow for one year across the United States. In New Mexico, even today, land is about $300 an acre. If you stock it at 50 cows per acre or 50 acres per cow, that's about 15,000. In Missouri, if you're in that kind of 3,000 range and you stocked at five acres a cow, you'd be right about 15,000. So, 
you know, that's, interesting. Uh, it, it's interesting that that has, has held up. So the, the land, the cost of land is not that different. It's the stocking density. Yeah. That is different. And I think that what comes into play in Missouri is we've got, a, we've got four, over 43,000 beef producers. Missouri's the number three cow-calf state in the country. There are a lot of cow-calf operators who have sort of a mindset about their business. And my colleague, Wesley Tucker, who's an extension ag economist, I can't take credit for this. It's, it's so dadgum clever. I would I'd steal it if I was a, a, a little bit less virtuous of a person than I am, but he coined it. You just gave him ego. credit, so it's okay. You just gave him a shout out. It's fine. Fair enough. He coined the 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 beef producer mindset is egonomics and not economics, right? Ooh. So I have to run 50 cows or I have to have 75 cows and they they focus their op their desired or preferred operation based on the number of cows they own as a status symbol rather than, hey, this is what my carrying capacity of the acreage that I either own or rent that I control basically. And they, they don't come at it from uh, work with what I've got, but work with what I want to have. And I think that's that's a real drain on profitability in the, in the commercial cow-calf industry. Yeah, I like that. I wrote it down. I got it. I wrote it down. That was a good one. Um, Thank you. But I can... I can really see that. It's not hard to, to think about like some mindsets and see that. Yeah. So, um, okay. So that's the land discussion, but I'm still, I want to know if there's like, if you have, cause I, I feel you got my first question answered, but I'm still wanting to hear if there's any data about wastage of a bale rolled out or, um, yeah, wastage of a bale rolled out versus a big, a bale fed in a ring. Because when I post on social media about how, you know, when I'm doing advocacy stuff for, you know, consumer engagement, I'm talking about how, like, this is why we rolled out bales, because we believe it works better for our operation. We believe there's less waste. We can spread it around in the pasture. So the cattle are spreading their manure around like this works best for us. But I would love to know if there's actual data. Yeah. So there, the thing that unrolling unlocks for a lot of folks that I don't think we think about when we're just putting bales into a, into a bale feeder, um, you're more likely to feed one day's worth of hay at a time or a couple of days worth of hay at a time where we, where we create the conditions for waste to dramatically increase is when we put out enough hay to last the cows a week. Right. Inevitably they're going to eat everything they want to eat in three or four days yep. and they're going to foul the rest of it. And so it's, it's, I'm, I'm sort of being a little cagey with my answer because if you compare feeding one day's worth of hay in various feeding systems, it's not all that different. But if you put out a week's worth of round bales in in ring feeders and compare that to even putting out unrolling hay every other day, every third day, it's kind of an apples to oranges comparison. So we could make a lot of waste unrolling hay if we unrolled a week's worth at a time, but right. we're, we're using unrolling to to be more efficient and more precise in terms of matching how much feed we deliver with how much the cows actually will eat in a day or need to eat. Then the equation balances. And so, you know, I've seen estimates of waste from unrolled hay be under 5%, but I can't make that comparison because they only unrolled enough to be consumed in a 24 hour period. Yeah. So that's, and another thing that I didn't mention, and I mean, another reason is that we like that 
when we have cows out on like Windsor pasture, we are rolling that out. And we also like rolling it out because then it gets every, everybody has access, has easier access. You don't have boss cows keeping stuff out. The calves can get up and eat it, you know, because we're fall calving, so they can get access if they need to. And so that's another reason we like it, but you're right. You know, it's not uncommon for us to have the whole herd maybe split and on different pastures or something. And we don't need to give a bale to a group every single day. We can do it every other day. And instead of delivering two bales every other day and then, yeah. So, I mean, that sounds very on point. I understand the apples to oranges comparison that you're talking about and, and the way you laid that out makes a lot of sense. Plus, if you think about it from a, from a, we'll call it a bunk space, even though it's a ring feeder space, yeah. you know, a ring feeder is supposed to be eight to 10 cows. That's, mm-hmm. you're supposed to have a ring feeder out for every eight to 10 cows. How many folks actually put out a ring for every eight to 10 cows, you, right? You for cows, enough cows. You putting out five bales of hay every day for five rings. Yeah. Like, that's a lot of hay. That's a big, that is big a lot of hay. And so then you, you meter it out and you say, okay, well, I'm going to put five bales out but that's going to last now a week. Well, now we've created the conditions for, for waste to increase dramatically. And so that's where it becomes a really slippery slope. And I would tell you that the most common objection that I get to unrolling hay is that they, the, the producer will say, well, that's great when the ground's dry, but when it's muddy, it's, it's dang near impossible for us to do it. And I, I think that's a, that's a legitimate objection because, you know, especially in Missouri, even with stockpiled tall fescue, you know, it's it's tough to find to fill the forage gap in March or in February, late February and into March. And that's one of the third wettest month of the year for us. So, yeah. you know, unrolling hay between Valentine's Day and St. Patrick's Day is. Yeah, I appreciate that objection. It's a and valid. So, yeah, it's a valid objection. If you're if you're it is. Yeah, if it's really super sloppy, I mean, it's it's a valid objection because I have gotten the truck stuck trying to roll the hay out during that time period. So yeah. <laughs> uh, and, it's a valid objection, a valid point. And just to kind of drive the point home, you know, I don't know that zero days of hay is going to be reasonable in the fescue belt without kind of some specialized conditions. But I really want people to be thinking about any time that I'm feeding hay for more than 30, 45 days in the winter time. I really need to be asking questions about if I'm, if my carrying capacity of my land is in sync with my forage demand for my cow herd, do I have too many cows on my resources? And, you know, there, I mean, I could see a situation where if you had access to maybe some cover crops, some cereal rye to fill that forage gaps, to continue grazing during that kind of February and March area. But I I acknowledge that if you're in the Ozarks and you don't have a lot of farm ground around, tall fescue stockpile is usually played out but in that kind of february and in march range and so you know you can either do one of two things you can reduce your um your cow numbers and and have more acres per cow to kind of get around that or you know you can bite the bullet and feed some hay because i also the thing that people don't think about when they're they're making hay is that you're harvesting pounds of N, P, and K, and carbon for that matter, off of your land where you're cutting hay, and then you're transporting it to another area of the farm mm-hmm. to, when you feed it. And so back to one of your early points, Brandy, I, I completely agree with the rolling out being a great way to improve manure distribution and improve, you know, the, the or to reduce the impact that 
our cows have in a specific area on a pasture. If I had to buy hay for 30 or 45 days and I'm in that case, I'm buying NP and K to put on my farm as well. And it's not a lot, but it can certainly help, especially in this environment where fertilization is a pretty of pastures is a common management practice. Yeah. No, that all makes a lot of sense. And I mean, you want to keep the nutrients on the soil and, and the pasture. And then, yeah, I mean, we're speaking the same. I've When you have come and talked to us at our house about our spoiler alert, folks, uh, Eric is our nutritionist. So, and helps us plan a lot of stuff. So. <laughs> but when he has come and talked about this, like I have not ever, I've usually been busy doing something else. So I haven't got to be involved in depth in the conversations. Um, I just get told like, Hey, we're going to roll hay out and this is what we're going to do. So it's great for me to get to hear a lot of the reasonings and the research behind that. So I appreciate, you know, the explanation and the deep dive with the details there. Um, Another thing that you specialize in, and this is along the same lines, is you're talking about like the cost feeding, the cost of feed, and undervalued feedstuffs. You mentioned they're having some cereal grains or cover crops. Do you want to expand upon that more? Just utilizing yeah. undervalued feedstuffs and such like that. Yeah, for sure. And so the I do a lot of work with stockers and backgrounders in Missouri, and we have a you know a, a growing cattle feeding industry that I, I hope we get a chance to talk to talk about a little bit at the end and some of my extension work there. But, you know, I think that Missouri has an opportunity to really increase the number of stockers backgrounding that occurs in the state because we rate, we have 1.8 million cows. We raise 1.6 million beef calves every year. 1.1 million of those calves get on a, get on the bus at weaning and go to another state to be, to grow out, to finish, to be harvested. And mm-hmm. I like to tell people, and I'm, I'm being kind of a, a smart aleck. And when I say this, Brandy's real surprised. It's okay. No, it's but okay. I appreciate fellow smart Alex. So go right ahead. We in Missouri, we waste more forage than a lot of other States grow in oh. the first place. And through some of our management practices, like we were talking about in terms of hay feeding, I think that forage is an undervalued feedstuff. And I, I really, when I'm, when I'm working with uh, folks and talking about backgrounding and stockers, you know, I'm, I'm trying to coach them on keeping laser focus on cost of gains. Mm-hmm. How much does it cost to put a pound of weight on a calf? And what is the cheapest way that I can possibly do that? Because that's the only way that you create a margin in this margin-based stocker backgrounder business, right? So mm-hmm. you buy them, you put weight on cheaper than what the market will pay you for that. And that's essentially what you what you operate off of. And so, you know, we also have a wonderful opportunity in Missouri because there's a lot of crops in, you know, really the northern two thirds of the state to reintegrate crops and, and livestock production and use things like cover crops and uh, for for backgrounding calves in the fall and in, even in the spring. Um, you know, I just I really, really a lot of the conversations that I have with, with Brandy's husband, Hyatt, you know, we're, we're talking about how to, you know, keep cost to cost to gains down. And, and just to kind of give a shout out to Hyatt and Brandy and their operation, High Bar Cattle Company, you know, three years ago, Hyatt came to me and said, Hey, you know, we have an opportunity to expand our seed stock operation and buy some more cows. And 
I don't remember at the time if it was on his radar yet, but I advocated pretty strongly for rather than expanding cows for them to diversify into uh, custom grazing stockers, either for somebody else, custom grazing for somebody else or or buying them themselves and, and diversifying. And part of that actually goes back to our previous conversation about hay feeding. One of the reasons I really like the stocker backgrounder operation in conjunction with a cow-calf operation is that a beef cow has to eat 365 days a year, mm-hmm. Christmas, Thanksgiving, 4th of July, etc. Our forage, at least if you look at the the growth pattern of tall fescue and in, in the fest throughout the fescue belt, we've got about 60 days in the spring where we have more grass than we know what to do with, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. April and May, forage growth rate well outstrips the forage demand by a beef cow herd. It's super pretty and out here. And it's it's in, gorgeous. In April, May, it's a bright green and it's very it, tall. We love it. But the reality is, is that it's high quality for a relatively short period of time. And then we go into that summer slump. We have little to no forage growth. The forage has gone to a re- into a reproductive state, put a stem and a seed head up. Quality has dropped precipitously. So we have the summer slump to deal with. Then we have those kind of winter forage gap months to fill as well. And and when we stock a ranch or a farm with 100% of its carrying capacity as cow-calf pairs, they've got to they've got to eat all year round and so we have to fill those forage gaps but when we instead with a forage system where we have prodigious growth for a relatively short amount of time if we stock that with what i call flexible grazing units animals that gain weight you can bring a lot of them on the farm you can have them there for a relatively short time and you can make money off of them in that relatively short time you can actually then increase the number of acres that you have stockpiled for fall or in winter grazing and even to get through that summer slump. And so I advocate for farmers to not ever stock their pastures 100% with cows, but to instead have like half cows and half some kind of flexible grazing unit. And, you know, High Bar Cattle Company has done that very successfully in the last three years. And I, I want to acknowledge them for sort of being an early adopter of my my idea to to go down that route now it has coincided with rapid increases in the price of a, yeah. a feeder cap yeah, over the last three years so i don't i'm time. not gonna <laughs> it's a good time to test to test the theory <laughs> I'm, I'm not gonna throw my shoulder out patting myself on the back on this podcast over the deal but uh you can it's okay <laughs> but uh it's a it's a little confounded but again that's that's part of this integrating the your forage system and your grazing platform and your cows and your beef operation. They're they're all one system. They're not separate enterprises. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that a lot of folks appreciate that enough. Even if they pay lip service to sustainability and environmental stewardship and, and those things, when it comes down to a dollars and cents perspective, I still think there's there's places where we we miss out because in Missouri, historically, the the dogma has been that fescue is not good stalker grass. It's not good yearling grass because uh, weight gains are poor. And I'm I'm gonna I'm going to shatter that dogma with kind of identifying some mental models that are incorrect. The first one is that all of the old research that showed that 
stockers gain less than a pound a day on tall fescue, they turned cattle out in April and they gathered them in October or November. Okay. So what did you, what do you, a long time, right? And so what did you do? You understocked during April, May, and June to make sure you had enough grass to last the entire six months. Mm -hmm. You carried them through the summer slump in July and August and you created conditions where, especially we know about in Missouri, that the the uh, fungal endophyte that lives in symbiosis with tall fescue um, can have some impacts on cattle from a physiological standpoint. So it exacerbates heat stress. Yeah. That's fescue toxicosis. Well, if you graze fescue hard, and I mean, you actually match forage growth rate with forage demand. And you do that for a relatively short period of time in the spring, you can get gains that are two to three X what the literature would say. And I've, I've got a paper under review in the Journal of Applied Animal Science right now de demonstrating that. And I wish that that was an original thought, but it's literally just the same uh, deal as double stocking in the Flint Hills. It's just changing the timing just a little bit to uh, match cool season grass growth rate rather than warm season grass growth rate. Because I mean, Ed Call and um, Clinton Owens be demonstrated this 45 years ago in the Flint Hills, two thirds of the weight gain in their stalker cattle in the Flint Hills came in the first half of their grazing season. Mm -hmm. So they doubled the number of animals for half the time. They went from six months to three months. They put 225 to 250 pounds of weight on an animal in those three months by going from four acres per steer to two acres per steer in the Flint Hills. There is a vibrant and flourishing stalker cattle industry in, in Kansas right now. We can do the same thing in Missouri because I've demonstrated that you can put 200 pounds of weight on a calf in, in a little over a hundred days. If you turn them out the first of April, you pull them off the 4th of July and that's with no supplement. That's no, there's no, added inputs to try and get there. It's just simply by matching the growth rate of the tall fescue during the spring with the um, basically enough animal pressure, enough grazing pressure. And and just one, I know I'm kind of co-opting the conversation here, but we also did that under a continuous grazing model. So we didn't do any sort of rot rotational grazing system. We didn't change harvest efficiency. We didn't there's no mob grazing or anything, anything like that in this system. We just turned cattle out on the pastures and pulled them off the same pasture 90 to 110 days later, depending on how, you know, how the forage availability held out. So, you know, once I think you add some of the in managed intensive grazing on top of that, the, the sky's the limit for what you could do with stalker cattle on, on tall fescue. Yeah. Well, we have, um, I mean, I just have to applaud Eric because I mean, nothing, uh, there's not anything I can add to what you said to like further emphasize that. It was, it was just, we are a working example or, you know, one of your, the first guinea pigs, I guess, to, to test it out. And it's worked very well for us. It does give me anxiety to see them all out there because I'm like, please, can you all just behave and like, don't get sick and just be good but for us it's it's it for us it's also been important because like we don't know if we're gonna get rain or not like at the beginning of this year we had a bunch of grass rain was really good we had a wet spring and a wet winter and we had a lot of grass and as much of the cattle producing part of the united states knows 
like then it dried up. And so Kansas, like our county right now is an extreme drought. A lot of Missouri is in severe extreme drought, like the South, the upper high plain, you know, the high plains, all that. But for us, it's easier for us to, I mean, like grass cattle are more liquid, right? Like it's easier for us to move grass cattle and bring some of those on board or, or move them off than it is for us to like find the right kind of cow and expand that way. Like I, we don't, you know, we can bring on more cows and fit that grazing model of just get more cows, but we want a specific kind of cow. We don't necessarily want pears. You got to find like, it's, it's just more convenient to take advantage of the grass that we have by running stalkers alongside or after the cab cows than it is to just buy more cows. Well, and you got right to the heart of it there, Brandy. So you essentially, you all were able to destock when you guys went into D3 drought yeah, because you put wheels under the, under the grass calves, right? So that- (laughs) They left. (laughs) That, and you know, you didn't have to sell them at a loss, right? So the feeder calf market was extremely strong because they have outs to go into the feedlot. They don't lose value during periods of drought the way the beef cows do, right? So you could have picked up a beef cow in Missouri in June for under a thousand bucks. You know, she's probably five to eight years old, but still solid mouth. And she was undervalued because there were sale barns that were literally running 3x their normal weekly sales because nobody was, nobody had grass. Yeah. And that's, I think, to segue into our next piece, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to take over host you're, and drive no, the bus the here. <laughs> and you're the guest. You're pulling double duty. I, you're making my job really easy. So go right ahead. It's great. But I'm really enjoying the conversation. These all fit in together because drought is a, is a fact of life in mm-hmm. any beef production system in the United States. And so I'm probably a bit more willing to consider putting stalker cattle alongside cows than a lot of folks, because that was our, how we did things um, on the ranch back in New Mexico. So, you know, in New Mexico, we get 12 inches of rain a year in, in the County that I grew up in at least. And 12, sorry, 12 inches. (laughs) Wow. Yes. Yeah. Although fun aside between the 10th of May and the 10th of June, my dad had 17 inches of rain this year. So that country looked, better than I've ever seen it. Look, I was home. We went home in July. But um, so 2023 was not a drought year in New Mexico, but yeah. we had a lot of drought years uh, growing up. And and so we got to where we would run fewer cows than we probably could otherwise. But we would keep all our calves after weaning and we would graze them over the winter and through the next spring. And then we'd sell an 800 pound, 850 pound yearling the next summer. And that gave us a couple of outs. So if it was dry and we thought we weren't going to have enough grass to get through the winter, we could sell calves at weaning. And we essentially would reduce our stocking rate dramatically at that. Right. Yeah. Or if we had grass to carry them through then, or we thought we were going to make it through the winter, we would keep them till the next spring. And if it was looking kind of dry early the next spring, we might sell a six weight in April. Mm-hmm. So we had really three outs for those calves and we never put ourselves in a position where because it got dry, we had to strategically destock and sell cows. I mean, I remember in, oh gosh, it was the early 2000s. I was in a freshman or a sophomore in high school. We got really dry and the I, I 
said that I had grown up on a corporate ranch. So there were several ranches that kind of worked in conjunction together. Well, it got really dry and we weaned calves and cows went from one ranch to another, but we still didn't have to destock. We just got rid of, we just got rid of the calves at weaning and we moved cows basically to where the grass was. And so, right. you know, it was a lot different situation than in other parts of the country where we get into drought and then cows just get sold. Right. And so, you know, I, I often counsel folks to sell cows during drought to reduce their stocking rate and to reduce the, the amount of hay that they have to feed. Because for example, in the 2018 drought in Missouri, hay went overnight from $35 a bale to $95 a bale. Wow. So your input costs triple in a yeah. short, short period of time. Mm-hmm. How profitable are you going to be? You know, an old cowboy back at home told me a long time ago that the best cow-calf guys aren't the ones that make the most money in the good years. They're the ones that lose the least money in the bad years. I always use that little shtick line in extension publications and when I'm talking in popular press articles about things like this. But, yeah, you know, drought drought is a way of life. And I I actually did an analysis of... um, precipitation in Missouri over the last 80 years where we had good weather records. So just to, to boggle your mind even more, I now live in an area where we get 42 inches of rain at precipitation a year coming from a place where we get 12. A big change. <laughs> big change. I've always lived where you get 42 inches of rain a year. I would not thrive well if I lived somewhere where it was all <laughs> Other than when I lived in, when we lived in Manhattan and I lived in Australia for that year, I've always had 42 inches of rain. So I can't imagine your, you know, like change, you know, like background change, basically that, that would blow my mind. It was, it was a big change. Definitely. When I first moved to Manhattan from New Mexico, it was, it was the humidity the first summer. It wasn't the cold and and, and (laughs) skeeters and actually having having uh different colors different shades of green to see in in pastures that's that's yeah. really something but but so despite living in an area where we have 42 inches of rain a year i went back and i looked at 80 years of good precip records for columbia missouri drought is defined in the literature as receiving less than 80 percent of annual average annual precipitation there mm-hmm. were 18 periods of drought in missouri in those in columbia missouri weather records that's a drought once every 4.33 years, mm-hmm. or another way of thinking about it, that's about two droughts a decade. Okay. 2012, 2018, 2023. We're not building our business models to incorporate drought in this part of the world because we think, oh, I, we get so much precipitation that it, we're, we're not drought resistant but certainly we're not thinking about it but golly i mean if you just look back and you talk to the more yeah exactly you talk to the more experienced farmers and they'll tell you about not just the drought in 12 not just the drought in 18 you know not just the drought in 07 but we don't build our we don't build our business model like that and that's one of the beauties i think of what you all have done by when as a seed stock operator you made the decision rather than doubling down on cows to get into grass calves, you have increased, you've essentially doubled the land that you have for cows during periods of drought. Yep. You've bought flexible grazing units who 
can be marketed during periods of drought without a, a discount, right? So the number one objection I get from farmers when I tell them to sell cows during drought is, why would I sell low only to have to buy back high later on, right? So mm-hmm. you want to buy low and sell high, not the other way around. And drought creates the exact opposite conditions for for beef cow operations. And so, you know, I think we just, we really as an industry need to, moving forward, consider how we can diversify our grazing platforms and have both stockers and cows. And and stockers doesn't even have to be buying somebody else's calves, bringing in biosecurity risks, all of those things. I mean, you know, if you're in an area where replacement heifer values are high, keep all your replacement heifers. Yeah. One round of timed AI, keep the AI bred heifers for your own replacements and then market the others as feeders turn a bull out with them and sell them as bred heifers to somebody else, do another round of time day. I, you know, I, I, that's also going to have the benefit on your cow calf operation of really tightening up your calving season for those replacement heifers, those first calf heifers. So I, I think there's even ways to be creative with your cow herd to create a, what I call a flexible grazing unit so that you can diversify. Now, Going back to the egonomics thing, though, if you had 100 cows and I tell you to run 70 cows or 50 cows, that might sort of be a bit of a blow to the ego. It might be a shock to the system, but I think you'll be more profitable in the long run looking at that model where you don't have your pasture stocked to the hilt with just beef cows. Yeah. Well, for us, I mean, there's a couple, and I know this this podcast episode is not about us, Um our ranch personally, but I just have to speak from like our experience of the advice that you have given us, which was great advice and insight. Like for us, we lease most of our land that we run cows on and it's not on a per head base. It's, it's on per acre. So we have the same cost invested in the grass, whether we have 300 cows or hundred cows. And I'm not telling people how many cows we have, but like you get the point that, you know, we have the same fix, the grass is a fixed cost. And so we need to be able to get as much out of, we need to make as much profit as possible without sacrificing the grass. We're very big on rotational grazing and like not taking all the nutrients out of the grass. We want the, like we're three or four years into the rotational grazing now, and we are seeing some real benefits of like how quickly we get the growth back in the spring because we haven't like nub, you know, nubbed it down through the winter and through the fall. And so, so that's one part of it is we need to be diversified so that we can move those cattle if we need to in a drought, but also so we can get as much out of our profit out of the grass as we can. But also I don't want to feed all those cows through the winter when Hyatt, the audience doesn't know this, but like when you remember this, when Hyatt got hurt and had his head injury and I was um, December, like three months pregnant, couldn't tell anybody and was taking care of all the cows by myself because he was, supposed to sit on the couch and not move it's a lot to to whether you're feeding silage or cows or checking cows or anything like that doing cattle work through the winter and and so for us it's it's as much as part of the the winter labor as it is all the other reasons too like all the reasons just come together into one big reason of why it's working for us because it's not just one little thing it's lots of things stocked stacked on top of each other and you know, you bring up the winter feeding component of it, Brandy, and that's probably the number one reason that I hear from farmers in in Missouri. Hey, I, I'm thinking about getting out of cows and going to stockers because I'm I'm tired of feeding hay in the winter. I'm tired of bucket feeding cows, and, and 
putting round bales out. And so, you know, that's at least as our beef cow operator average age continues to creep upwards, I think, especially with among some of the older producers, that's going to be a motivating factor to make a transition, right? To mm-hmm. having a, a almost, I, I hate to call it a part-time grazing system because it's not part-time, but it kind of is, you know? So. Yeah, it's just, it, 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 I mean, a lot of what you've said challenges the the age-old mindset of this is how we've done it. And, and people, I, I am someone who is doesn't love change, but knows that's inevitable, so tries to be open-minded to it. And I think, and I have, I've been working on that. Hyatt would probably tell you, like, you are not open-minded to change, but I do think that I have been working on it. But I mean, it's, it's hard. People have been doing things a long time, and if it's working for them, and change can be scary. And when it's people's livelihoods, like, they want to make sure they can still you know, I think one of the biggest things for farmers or ranchers, like one of the biggest things that terrifies them or us is like, what happens if we can't keep the farm or we can't keep the ranch? Like it's, you know, it's like a gut punch. And so I think there's a lot of emotional things at play as to why people are slow to investigate new change or adopt new practices. But as someone who is not always very risk averse and doesn't always want to change. Like I can speak from experience that like we tried your, you know, your advice, I'm giving you full credit for this and your advice, your practices, and it is working. It, are we going to be as profitable every single year? Probably not. Cause at some point the cattle market is going to, it's cyclical. It's going to swing back and not be like record high. You can't have record high prices every year. That's not how a record high works, but, um, you know, I just think that people are, people can be slow to change and slow to accept, but once they find something they like and they get, they can get really full on board with it. As my Canadian friends would say, they go, you know, we tend to go full bunny. And, um, um, so yeah, I think that, I mean, all the points that you've made are just, just really great. And I would encourage those who are listening to Eric's like advice and expertise and, you know, his research and data that back up what he's saying. Like I would advise you to be open-minded and and give it another, you know, just give it a listen and give it a try. It doesn't mean you have to like completely convert your ranch into move all the cows away and fully adopt stalkers, but just there's nothing wrong with trying something. And if it doesn't work for you, then you, you don't have to do it anymore. You own, you know, so that was, but I hope it made sense. I'm also concerned though, I mean, from an industry perspective, right? So we have, we're supposed to bottom out in this cattle cycle and we've just continued to go sink further and further, right? So, I mean, I think we're projected to be down another 300,000 beef cows this year. We're we're producing more beef today than with, with a similar number of cows that we had in 1960. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's a real concern. It, I'm, I get that objection from, allied industry quite a bit. And I agree with them from a macroeconomic perspective, right? So the cows are going to have to come from somewhere if we're going to continue to produce as much beef or to continue to increase the amount of beef that we produce. But I'm just understand that I'm speaking to individual, individual farm and ranch level right now, not the broader industry as a whole, if that makes sense. No, I think, I mean, I hope I didn't conflate what you were saying. I hope I didn't confuse people. No, no, not at all. Not at all. I'm, I'm just speaking to the objections that I usually get when I give, when I, when I talk about these topics. Right. So. Right. I, um, was, 
looking, um, so I'm the editor of the Red Angus magazine. We just had a market, uh, we just had an article written about the market. And so I, um, it was talking about rebuilding the cow herd. I was trying to find it here while we were talking, but rebuilding the cow herd and how the, the person who wrote, I think it was Dr. Daryl Peel at Oklahoma State University said they like, it's not, it's not going to be reasonable, rebuilt, reasonable rebuilding until probably like the first part of 2025, like at the earliest. And I mean, that's like not quite 18 months away. It's a little less than that, but that just, that just blows my mind. I mean, it's not that I don't believe it, but it's just to think that we may be in this, this pricing situation and such for another 18 months is, is really interesting. And, um, yeah. Well, and the, the domino effects of that, think about this fall. So if you're weaning springborn calves right now, or you're fixing to wean springborn calves in the next 30 days, if you could get $1,500 for a weaned heifer, why would you keep her just mm-hmm. from an economic perspective? Yeah. You know, outside of keeping the ones that you need to maintain your current cow numbers, right? So we've got price kind of stepping on the neck of herd rebuilding right now because it's just so good yeah well i mean what's the incentive to rebuild if you're in a drought and you can get like you said fifteen hundred dollars for a weaned heifer why not exactly now the others the flip side of that though that concerns me for folks like y'all that are in the stalker game though is that consequently you're having to buy those fifteen hundred pounds fifteen hundred dollar heifers and You know, it's going to be very important to keep track of the value of gain and watch the market closely. And quite honestly, to use risk protection like LRP to set a floor under these cattle, because at some point the market is going to turn. Yes, it is. Right? I'm going to make sure Hyatt listens to this episode because I'm we're at the point where I'm worried like, OK, how much longer is this market going to last? Because, like, again, we are the ones buying the 1500 pound wean calves or $1,500 wean calves. Um, I'm not like, how long are we going to hang on to these before yeah. we start to see like the, the nosedive? And so, yeah, I, I have, I have already begun thinking about that because of the, the risk averse nature of my psyche. Um, like I said, I'm going to have to make sure Hyatt listens to this episode so that he. <laughs> well, and so the government subsidizes risk protection through that LRP program. I'm not an expert in it, but anybody that's listening Please go learn everything you can about it. I'm not trying to sell insurance on behalf of anybody. I'm not taking any dollars from anybody, but for that purpose. But we're just, I mean, the market's getting frothy. The market is getting kind of bubbly. I mean, I hate to be kind of the 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 boy who cried wolf in this deal right now. But if you have an opportunity to lock in a, a sales price that will allow you to be profitable in spite of buying these $1,500 weaned calves and that government is partially subsidizing that insurance premium, why not, right? Yeah. Yeah, we have not, we have investigated LRP, but I've not ever pulled the trigger on it. But I'm thinking, you know, moving forward in this next cycle of stalkers, like next spring, when we, that that's something that would be a good investment. So, um, you mentioned, I hate to take this off this topic because I feel like you and I could talk about this for another hour, but I know that you mentioned you wanted to talk more about the feedlot school program. And so I want to make sure you have an opportunity to explain what that is and how your involvement with it. So if you just want to share, it's, it's 
called the University of Mr. Missouri Extension Feedlot School Program. So, you know, the, the world is your oyster when it comes to sharing about that. Yeah. So the we started the feedlot schools in August of 2021. And, and part of the reason we did that was that a, uh, a beef packing plant opened in southwest Missouri in late 2020, early 2021, mm-hmm. that was going to was planning to harvest five to 700 head a day. And they were looking pr- primarily for for fat cattle, for for finished feedlot cattle, and and Missouri, we we harvest less than fifty seven thousand head of finished cattle in the state per year. So, interestingly, fifty years ago, Missouri was a top five cattle feeding state in the country. But when industry consolidated in the seventies, it um, moved us kind of out of that that model of, of finishing cattle in the state. And we became known more as a cow calf state. Mm-hmm. American foods group is opening another harvest facility that should be open in either late 2024, or early 2025. They're, they're planning to kill 2,400 head a day outside of St. Louis. So oh, okay. um, Warren County, uh, just outside of St. Louis. Now they're, they're also going to be looking for for fat cattle as well, and so there's a lot of interest right now in in feeding cattle in the state. And so, we created a two day school um, with the University of Missouri uh, to get folks that are interested in feeding cattle, or folks that are already feeding cattle and interested in scaling up. Uh, there's been a lot of, you know, hoop and monoslope barns put up, particularly north of I seventy in Missouri, where there's row crops. Um, so we're we're bringing folks in uh, twenty five. We limit it to twenty five people. They come in for two days. We teach them the ins and outs of cattle feeding. We tour at least two cattle feeding facilities in the area. We've done them all over the state to this point. We've held five of them, and we've actually got folks from other states to come in as well, particularly from um, east of us that where maybe there's not near as much support for cattle feeding from university extension, things like that, just because the industry is is relatively modest and small. We're even diversifying this program into f- for folks that are interested in uh, selling beef direct to consumers. So mm-hmm. we're, we're yeah. hoping we got a grant and now this fall and we're hoping next year to kind of reorient some of our feedlot schools into focusing on folks that are doing freezer beef direct to consumer marketing, that type of that type of thing. So I, I would say to be on the lookout in 2024, because we'll probably be hosting another three to four of those schools, whether it's commodity cattle feeding or whether it's direct consumer freezer beef type marketing. And we just want to support value added agriculture in Missouri in, in whatever shape or form that we can. And, you know, the packing plants are, are a large driver. Re-regionalizing beef packing into Missouri is, I think, is going to bring cattle feeding back. Plus, being in the corn belt, we're often our corn's at a negative basis relative to other places. Meaning that, you know, if the futures market is five dollars a bushel, you know, this time of year, it's not that uncommon to see corn sell for 30 cents a bushel less locally because there's just so much of it. And compare that to when I was on faculty at WT, I I had to run the research feedlot for a period of time. Even back 10 years ago, we were buying corn for 75 cents a bushel over the futures price oh, to wow. cover the freight. The, that's the basis. So so that, that negative basis, is, I think, is also 
going to be a driver. Plus, land is getting expensive and trying to bring the next generation back, you know, putting a, a cash flowing feedlot onto some of your farm, more marginal farm ground might be a more efficient use of those resources and create an opportunity for maybe, you know, the next generation or a relative or a partnership or an expansion of the farm without having to go and, and buy more land. Absolutely. That's just another mindset shift, right? Like if your corn isn't bringing what you need it to, to be profitable, why not use that in another way? Why not use that to feed freezer beef? Or like you said, you could just use the land in a different way. Um, I mean, there's a that freezer beef school or the feeding feedlot school program as it applies to people who are feeding freezer beef. I think that is a massive opportunity for people to take advantage of. I mean, we personally, again, this is podcast is not about me, but we, um, in 2020 when COVID hit, like we had, we were selling two or three freezer beef a year anyway, before COVID just like, you know, we had maybe a calf didn't fit with the rest of the load or something like that. Or we, you know, just whatever we'd have two or three, we'd keep one for ourselves and then sell the other couple. I mean, I think I'm on track to sell like 25 head this year because like that when COVID hit, as you well know, people wanted to know, like there was no beef at the grocery store and people wanted beef. And then they ended up liking that experience and that touch point with the farmer or rancher. And they also liked the value and the, like, they just liked the whole experience and people that started buying beef from us in COVID like are still buying beef from us because they liked it. Um, and thankfully like, you know, Hyatt has a, has some nutrition and you have obviously have helped us with nutrition background and um, we've been able to transition and build that arm of our business and just have another diversified arm on the ranch. But I think that there's a, a an important information gap there to be filled because it's, if you, you know, you have some people that are, there's a difference between like feeding a steer with an a intended purpose that you're going to sell for freezer beef and then taking a seven-year-old coal cow and selling that for freezer beef. That's different. And selling the latter does not help the overall perception of freezer beef in general. So I think that that's a, and I'm not saying that people in Missouri are doing that. I'm just saying that those are, those are occurrences. And I, I just think I applaud you guys for recognizing that need for that program and that education and filling that gap. Because I mean, I would think that those would be full up with students that want to learn how to like optimize that opportunity as a, for a business um, and be profitable because you can be profitable in it. Um, and there's always a demand there for that. So yeah, I just applaud you guys for doing that. I'm going to have to check out the dates and the locations because maybe well, thank you. I, I appreciate that learn from you guys about it too. No, we, um, yeah, we've sold every school out to this point and had a waiting list. So we, awesome. we, we have been very fortunate to have sort of kind of hit a nerve with, with what we're doing. And we actually did our first direct marketing or freezer beef school in August in Eastern Missouri. Um, just, it was kind of a beta test to see, we knew we were going to get that grant, but we wanted to see if we could put some of the content together beforehand um, and, and just see how it, how it flowed. It went really well. I'm, I'm excited about it, but to your point, so it may not be as extreme as uh, a white fat steer versus a seven-year-old cold cow being sold as freezer beef. But if you survey regional processors, so the, the, the lockers that are processing freezer beef, the number one complaint that they'll have are underfinished cattle. And I yeah. don't think that we have, I don't think that a lot of producers who get into freezer beef are thinking about repeat customers and the eating experience and what it truly takes to fatten an animal 
to get a choice, you know, ribeye yeah. to put on the plate, right? And so, you know, I, I wonder how many folks have sort of dipped their toe in the water at this, taken a thousand pound steer that probably isn't going to be finished till he's 1300 pounds to the locker, gotten a select or a, maybe even a standard carcass and had a relatively poor eating experience for their customers because of it. That's the, at least in Missouri, that's the number one complaint. If you talk to, talk to all the, all the lockers that are, that are harvesting freezer beef for, for folks. And so, you know, we're really trying to, to fill that gap and to sort of bring the knowledge and education of how to properly fatten and finish an animal for a positive eating experience for the customer. And, and we're agnostic. So we talk both about grass finishing and grain finishing. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not just trying to say that every animal needs to be a, you know, a, a prime yield grade two type, you know, white tablecloth grain fed beef experience. I mean, there certainly is a market for, for grass fed beef as well. And, you know, we've got folks that have 10 plus years of experience doing it, speaking in the schools. And, you know, we're trying to, we're trying to basically hit all bases yeah. in that, well, that space. That's great. I, um, I don't know what the data, data would say in Kansas, but I might ask our butcher the next time I've got to take one, the next butcher date, like what is the biggest complaint they get about just in general, you know, is in terms of beef, because anybody who's ever sold bulls knows that it's, I mean, you can apply the same principle to selling freezer beef, right? It's easier to only have to find five new customers every year than it is to find 25 customers a year. So like that's the mindset in selling bulls is you want repeat customers. The same with freezer beef. If I have people coming back to me, they're like, hey, we're out of a quarter. And granted, they're probably like most customers on average are only going to get like if they're feeding just their family unit in the home are may probably only need two quarters a year. Right. They yep. don't need one every every three or four months. Or, you know, they don't need one every three months. But um, if I don't if I know that they bought one in January and I can sell them another one in like August or something like that, like that's great. I just send them a message to be like, hey, are you out of beef? Rather than having to try to send find three new, you know, let's see if you sell four quarters on three head, try to find 12 new customers every time. That's exhausting. It's a lot of work walking people through the process of buying a quarter and these are the cuts and this is the pricing. And so if you can streamline that process and have a great product that sells itself, then it's less work on the, you know, on the admin side of it, the office side of it. Absolutely. Well, and that's just another way to add value to to your animals already. Uh, one last story. I know we're kind of running long, but the way that the feedlot school got started was that we have one of our farms in our uh, ag experiment station here at Mizzou that has diligently selected for carcass traits among their, their commercial cows, but their Angus cows, and they've diligently selected for carcass traits for decades they were feeding out their steers at commercial feedlots in other states. And for three consecutive years, they'd had over a 10% death loss in the feedlot in their animals and had basically over $100 a head in um, medicine costs in these animals. Goodness. We, in 2020, right before COVID hit, we got a a meeting of the nerds together to discuss why (laughs) these animals were doing so poorly in the feedlot. And some wild ideas were thrown out words. And, you know, I, I would hope, Brandy, that you would know me well enough to say that I, I'm a fairly practical guy, right? Yeah. So I was at this meeting 
And I said, you know, I think we're kind of getting out over our skis here. Let's just feed them out at home this year. We had an old bull test station on this farm, feedlot pins already. Let's feed them out at home and see what happens before we make these just absolutely drastic changes to our operation. Yeah. So we kept 70, two loads of fats. We lost one and we reduced our um, antibiotic cost from over $100 a head to one shot of Draxon to one calf throughout the feeding period. 55% prime, gained 3.6 pounds a day during finishing. Wow. We made way more money doing wow. it that way than we ever had. And so that demonstration at the Thompson farm actually was the genesis of the feedlot school. We were able to go out and get a USDA rural business development grant to upgrade our infrastructure so that we could feed more cattle there at that farm, that we needed a way to share those results. So we created the feedlot school program because we knew that cattle feeding was coming back anyway. Then we now we've gotten this um, Missouri Agriculture and Small Business Development Authority grant to, to develop our freezer beef schools. And so, you know, I, I think that the farms going forward are going to have to embrace value-added marketing irrespective of their industry that they're going to be in, right? And so, yeah. you know, having a freezer beef in conjunction with a cow-calf operation is a great way to 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 diversify, having stockers, right? And so that's really, if you ask me what my job was right now, I'm, I'm really just trying to push value-added ag in the beef space, but from different angles, right? Yeah. Not just commercial cows anymore. And and kind of the way that we've we've traditionally done things. No, I, I again, you just you ended it right there, like not the way we've traditionally traditionally done things, right? Like that's kind of the, that could be the title of the the blog post or of the episode, not the way we've traditionally done things, but it works. It's an opportunity, and if you're willing to take the time to investigate the opportunity and give it a shot, like you can, big gains can be had. So, um, yeah, that's great. Well, I am. Um, I'm sadly, we have to wrap up and get to your wrap up questions because I have kept you much longer than I intended to, but I've really enjoyed the conversation um, very much. So you are going to have to, um, your, you and your family are going to have to come over to Kansas this way as soon as you can. It's time for our famous three. The wrap up questions, I gave you a heads up on these. So hopefully you have got some prepared answer here or... Um, or, or at least a witty comeback. So the first one is, what is your favorite beef or cattle-related book or resource? And as a reminder to our audience, we ask all of our guests the same question. So your favorite beef or cattle-related book or resource? The Unsettling of America by Wendell Berry. So okay. it's not a cattle book. It's an agriculture book. But it's, it is a book about systems and how the various enterprises on a farm are integrated with one another and how we have purposefully intensified various aspects of a farm without recognizing the unintended consequences on other aspects of a farm. So he is very much a traditionalist and more of a pastoral system kind of a guy, but uh -huh. he's very much a systems thinker. And I, you know, I'm sure it's come across in this podcast today that, you know, I really like to think about systems in the big picture and, and, I just I've I got a lot out of that book the first time I've read it and I try to reread it every couple of years or so. It was recommended to me, you know, long time ago and it's just always really stuck with me. And th and there's 
but there's plenty of great books too. Jim Garrish's Kick the Hay Habit is another one that really got me kind of thinking about, uh, you know, a different way of managing a a beef cow operation than what kind of the traditional wisdom is. I'm putting these on my Amazon list uh, as we speak. Kick the Hay Habit and I got the Wendell Berry book. So I put them on my like later list to look at. So I'm, Thank you for sharing those. I'm very interested. Absolutely. Well, those, I hadn't heard those be shared yet. The funny thing is the Wendell Berry book is pretty critical of academia and university faculty. So it's anybody oh. who's read it is probably going to be extra surprised that a that an academic is recommending it. But uh, but uh, I, I'm not going to spoil it. So you'll okay. just have yeah, to find out what what he says and why in the book. Maybe I'll read it before I send it to Hyatt. So, um, okay. So the good answer, good answer. So the next one is what is a, not a book not related to beef or agriculture that you are currently reading? And if you're not reading a book right now, what is one of your favorite non-beef or ag books? Well, I, I don't want to admit to you all the uh, fiction books that I'm reading right now. I've really gotten into these um an EMP hits and the end of the world comes. And what do we, what does life look like after we lose all modern conveniences? Oh. I don't know why I've gotten into those this year. <laughs> I've read, I've read a ton of them for whatever reason. I actually, I just find it fascinating trying to think about how I'm going to, how a person might find or scavenge 2000 calories a day to eat after all modern conveniences are lost. So that's, that's what I'm currently reading, but I, I'm going to, I'm going to take your, your question and twisted a little bit. There's Uh-oh. one book that every person <laughs> in agriculture absolutely needs to read. It's the E myth. The E myth. Entrepreneur myth. The E myth. Yeah. Look, you're giving me so many things to add to my list here. The E myth. Yep. So essentially, what the E myth is, and I am going to give a little more description of this because the E myth talks about two fundamental concepts okay. working in a business. Versus working on a business. Oh, I've heard this before. Yeah. Two things. So ranching for profit, those folks, they use this concept very regularly in their schools and in their communications, right? And I, so I'm, I'm in complete lockstep with them on that because essentially working in the business is preg checking cows or feeding cows in the winter. Mm -hmm. Working on the business is setting a stocking rate is how much hay am I going to buy for next year, right? So the E-Myth describes that working in the business as the $20 an hour jobs and working on the business as the $200 an hour jobs. And there's far too many people that really enjoy being a cowboy, being a farmer, being a, uh, too specific, but being a farrier, being a mechanic, Mm -hmm. being a tractor operator, and there's not enough people that want to be a CFO, mm-hmm. an accountant, a bookkeeper, a CEO, yeah. right? And so those, but those tasks are what drive and shape the the well financial well being of any business, not just a not just a, a business in town, but a, mo- most importantly, an agricultural business. So the the first time I read that book, it just was a it was like a lightning bolt, like. I just I saw the applications in agriculture immediately and it completely changed my paradigm in terms of thinking about how ag 
businesses should operate because I always wanted growing up and I, and I know you can relate to this brandy, but you know, given our shared backgrounds, mm-hmm. I always wanted to be the best hand with a horse I could be or the best horseshoer or the best cattle handler or yes. the best cowboy. Right. And so, but after reading that book, I started thinking way less, not that they're horsemanship and stockmanship are not important, but I started thinking less about those and more thinking about how, how, how a ag business should operate because we have a, an existential problem in ag that nobody talks about. And, and I'm, I know I'm just dragging this out, but no, it's fine. Ag is a, an equity business, right? So it is a high equity negative cash flow business, right? And so it's, it's oftentimes difficult to, to pay the the operating note, but over time, the land and the cattle appreciate in value. And so you, you build equity. And, you know, I think we have to think about if we're going to bring the next generation back to the farm, how we're going to create business models that cash flow positively so that people can pay themselves to farm rather than farming being a, um, a negative cash flowing and expensive hobby. No, that's exactly right. Because, uh, the scenario where you have a farm and a job in town and you start small with your farm, but you grow that over time. And then by the time you get to be 45 years old, you have a farm that's probably big enough to retire to, but it's negative cash flowing. So you continue to work a job in town. There's farmers that are working themselves to death right oh, now yeah, absolutely. to facilitate their hobby because it is a negative cash flowing hobby. And is not a business. And people need to read books like this and think about if I'm going to be an ag producer in the future, how can I create conditions to create, to generate positive cash flow? We got to focus less on equity and more on cash flow. That's how we're going to bring the next generation back to the farm. Well, there has to be room for the next generation to actually pay themselves. You can't, who wants to go back to the, the next, like who wants to be the next generation and go back and work for their family or the main proprietor or whatever for like $12 an hour and try exactly. to raise a family on that. Like I, I don't want to work a 12 an hour job. Like exactly. Yeah. So or I, even, I wouldn't go apply somewhere for a job like that. So why am I going to come back to a farm or a ranch and willingly subject myself to that knowing that it's, I'm also going to have to work off town job and work myself into the ground. Like, I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I added all three of those books to my Amazon cart. Excellent. And, you know, just to, for one last piece of context. So I, I read the book Moneyball 20 years ago. It's about kind of the strategy behind building a baseball team, a smarter way to build a baseball team. And so I I've always thought... I didn't read the book, but I have seen the movie. I I was conned into watching the movie about five years after it came oh. out because it was just <laughs> blasphemy to me to, to watch the movie after reading the book. The book is outstanding. I But the movie's good too. Yeah. But I, I've always kind of thought about things a little differently. And I've always sort of Moneyball has been a theme or a concept that's been in my mind for over 20 years now. So it's I, I'm 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 sort of inclined to sort of think a little outside the box based on books and experiences that I've had over the years. So I think it's good. I think it's good to think outside the box and get outside our comfort zone. So I like it. those were not books that I was expecting you to say. But I, like I said, I liked all those. Those were great. Um, okay, our final kind of wrap-up question is, when you think of someone you admire, 
What is a trait they possess that has allowed them to be successful? Humility. That's that's really simple. Somebody who leads from the back, who makes sure that his or her soldiers, employees, people in their under their command are taken care of before they take care of themselves. I, I think that's that's the that's the number one trait that of the the folks that I really admire that have been mentors to me over the years, that's that's a unifying trait that they've all held. I like it. That's not you're not the only person to say that, but I com- I completely agree with that. I, I I'll like give you I'll give you a good example. So Casey Olson, my mm-hmm. advisor at K State. So I was actually originally scheduled to be the RA, the research associate at the Calcaf unit um, for five years when I was at K State during mm-hmm. my PhD program. I was asked to apply for that job at WT um, about two and a half years into my program. And it would have been very easy for Casey to say, you know what? You've got a commitment here already. You need to honor that commitment. But he was humble enough to say, hey, this is probably in your best, your career's best interest. You really ought to take this opportunity. And he basically let me off the hook and helped me apply and got me where uh, I was in a position to be a candidate for that position, and and you know I'm I'm eternally grateful to him for that because that was you know he he put my interests ahead of his calcaf units, and that I'm I'm very grateful for that, and I I really try to think about that a lot in terms of when I'm leading people and and trying to put them in a position to be as successful as they can. That's it. I mean. We both know, I mean, you obviously have a much closer relationship than with Dr. Olson than I do, but like I've, I've always really respected him and that story is not surprising to me. So that's, that's, that was nice. Thanks for sharing that with us and with the audience. Um, okay. Well, that sadly is all the time we have today. We did, we did talk for quite a bit. We covered a lot of stuff. Thank you for coming and joining us here on the beef podcast show. Um, I really enjoyed speaking with you. We covered a huge, broad range of topics. And so I hope the audience got as much out of it as I did. Um, and again, just thank you for coming. If people want to find out more about the the Extension Feedlot School program or why hay is the devil or anything like that, like where can they find you or or look up, you know, where do you want us to send them to to get in touch with you? So there's, I, I write a column for the Cattlemen's News every month, the, the Joplin oh, yeah, Stockyards the magazine. Yeah. Yep. I write a column for that every month. Um, I have a YouTube channel. It's MUIPM. That's University of Missouri Integrated Pest Management, which sounds weird for a ruminant nutritionist to be on an IPM page. But during COVID, we started doing YouTube videos just to kind of stay engaged with our extension clientele. And we produced over 70 videos on all aspects of forage and livestock production. Um, so there's there's a ton of YouTube videos for, for folks to check out there. And then extension.missouri.edu will be posting updates as to when the next feedlot school will be. And, um, you know, and, and also www.feedlotschool.com. So when it comes time to register that, we we have our own URL as well. So okay, so what's the? Do you know? I've got the URL here. University of Missouri Integrated Pest Management. Do you, is that website? What is that? Is so it, it's actually a YouTube, YouTube channel. Okay. So if you okay. um, channel. is it the acronym or is it spelled out on the YouTube? No, channel? it's just the acronym. Okay, 
M-U-I-P-M. And then the other one was extension.mizzou. Is that what you said? Uh, extension.missouri.edu. Okay, extension.missouri.edu. Okay, I have put all of those in the show notes for our listeners so they can check you out on all those different um, outlets and pick your brain and learn more. So um, thank you once again for coming on and talking with us. I really, really enjoyed talking to you and catching up. I'm sorry, Hyatt wasn't here to co-host the episode with me. <laughs> uh, I will tell him that I got to talk to you today. I did not tell him I was interviewing you today. I kind of forgot. Okay. Well, Brandy, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all for, for reaching out. I really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm honored that you all would list me among the, the leaders in the industry. So I, I just, I'm thankful for the time and, you know, hope we can do it again sometime. Yeah, I'm sure we will because I, we, we like to bring people back, especially when we have there's so much, such good topics and you are among the best and the brightest. So thank you for coming on. And um, to our audience, thank you for joining us, uh, listening to the Beef Podcast. And we hope you will join us next week right here on wherever you get your podcast. So see you later. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.